From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. A growing number of Americans aren't getting enough sleep, and one of the causes is sleep apnea. We'll hear from a sleep specialist about diagnosing and treating this common sleep disorder. It's actually made via a sleep study. We have to actually measure the snoring and the breathing during sleep. More and more we're doing tests at home so people can sleep in their own environment because a lot of people find the prospect of sleeping overnight under observation, not at the top of their to-do list. (laughs) Also on the program, back pain sends more people to their doctors than almost any other complaint. Find out why. And electrical stimulation is being used to treat back and leg pain when other treatments fail. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, fewer and fewer Americans are getting enough sleep. You know, I mean, sleep is critical. Technology. That's exactly right. According to the CDC, between 50 and 70 million adults in the U.S., that's what, 15 to 20 percent of the population, uh, either have sleep or wakefulness disorders. You know, they either can't get to sleep or they're waking up all night. Yeah, one of those disorders that contributes to America's sleep deficit is sleep apnea. During episodes of sleep apnea, you stop breathing, usually for just a few seconds, (laughs) and when you start breathing again, you might gasp for air. This may happen several times a night, and it's not conducive to getting a good good night's rest or for the person who might be sleeping next to you. Also, bad for them. The next day, you might feel drowsy or have difficulty concentrating on simple tasks because you're so tired. That's right. You've been up half the night and you're not breathing. (laughs) Joining us to talk about sleep apnea, Dr. Eric Olson. Dr. Olson trained in internal medicine and is a sleep medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Olson. Thank you. Nice to have you here again. So why such a common problem, sleep apnea? It doesn't seem like we used to, to hear as much about it as we do now. Yeah, the first description was in the 1960s in the medical literature, and then there really wasn't much acted upon for the next 20 years, in large part because we didn't have a great therapy for this. But it clearly has rushed on the scene as we've understood, A, how common this is, and B, what all the manifestations are if it's not treated, in particular one's cardiovascular health. So with that awareness of its commonality and then the adverse effects, it's really exploded. Um, Why is it so common? It's probably uh, related in large part to the size of our population. And I don't mean the numbers. I mean what our weights are. Obesity. Yes. So the number one risk factor for sleep apnea is greater than ideal body weight. So as our society has gotten heavier, so too has the prevalence of sleep apnea climbed. Uh, the word apnea, it's one of those doctor words. Yeah. What, does that, what does that mean in layman's terms? Yeah, great. Great question. So apnea just simply means a breath pause during sleep that's at least 10 seconds in duration. Now, some of these can be 30 up to 60 seconds, and it's not unusual for spouses to time these and report <laughs> their observations when they bring 60 seconds yeah, into the office. But at least 10-second breath pause is what we mean by an apnea. Is snoring apnea, and is apnea snoring? So they go together, but they're not the same. So snoring is just simply the sound of your upper airway structures vibrating as your throat is getting increasingly narrowed while you sleep. And so everyone who goes on to have an apnea or a breath pause will snore first. 
The good news is, is that most people that snore don't have sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is when that throat keeps closing down and then blocks off and then that airflow can't go through. You mentioned obesity as the, the number one risk factors, uh, factor. What are some others? Well, being a man puts you at higher risk than a woman until women go through menopause and then they start to catch up. Um, certain internal conditions, for instance, like having uh, underactive thyroid can be a risk. Certain medications can increase your risk, pain meds that we use, for instance, or habits. Smoking and alcohol can be risk factors as well. Um, and then simply just not getting enough sleep. So as you become sleep-deprived, your upper airway muscles become lax or tired, just like the rest of you, and are unable to keep that airway open. So you're talking about a downward spiral on that one. Exactly, exactly. Nasal congestion can be another thing, certain cranial facial or facial structural abnormalities. But weight really trumps most of these uh, in most patients. So is that why women tend to catch up after menopause is that they tend to tend to gain a little weight. I didn't say that. You're not looking at me. Yeah, yeah i got to be careful you're here. Very, you're very wise not to look at me. <laughs> well, it probably is a little bit more complicated because there's probably the hormonal changes as well, independent of their influence on weight. But it's clear as women get older and as menopause occurs, the risk goes up. So if you lose weight, does that help to lessen your apnea? Absolutely. So that's usually where we start with everyone when it comes to treatment recommendations. So the old rule of thumb is that as your weight changes by 10%, your degree of sleep apnea goes in the same direction by about 30%. So if you're able to lose weight, you get a pretty substantial improvement in the severity of your sleep apnea. I think I remember from previous conversations with you that if you're not getting enough sleep, you tend to overeat a little bit because you're looking to food then for the energy you're not getting because you're not getting enough restful sleep. So there is another downward spiral. Absolutely. Yep. So as you get sleep deprived, your uh, food choices change and tend to promote you know unhealthy uh, choices, and that will just uh, worsen the spiral. Unfortunately, we don't always see that individuals who treat their sleep apnea then just automatically lose weight. The hope is that as you sleep better and you get more energetic, you would burn more. So there's a link, but just simply treating the sleep apnea isn't enough, and usually the other uh, diet and exercise have to be done as well. Is this a diagnosis that a spouse can make uh, or you can make uh, by taking a good history, or how do you... Uh, confirm the diagnosis? How do you nail it? Yeah, we have a lot of good sleep doctors in bedrooms across the country because (laughs) this is almost always um, a condition that's brought to our attention by the bed partner. And so they observe these either frank pauses or this very disruptive snoring and this really labored breathing that comes with it. Um, The diagnosis, though, is actually made via a sleep study. So we use that history and exam to really hone our suspicion. But at the end of the day, we have to actually measure the snoring and the breathing during sleep to make the diagnosis. So they come and stay overnight at the hospital? Usually, although more and more we're doing tests at home. So people take the recording equipment Ah. with them and sleep in their own environment. 
The idea is that that's uh, easier, more convenient, uh, less intimidating, because a lot of people find the prospect of sleeping overnight under observation, you know, not at the top of their to-do list. Uh, (laughs) Not that that relaxing, I would imagine. (laughs) But wouldn't you think if you were awake and your spouse quit breathing for 60 seconds, I mean, you'd say goodnight, Irene, wouldn't you? I mean, that's a a long time. That can't can't be typical that much. (laughs) How, How long is usual? Well, so probably in the 15 to 25 second range. All right. We're talking about obstructive sleep apnea with Mayo Clinic sleep specialist, Dr. Eric Olson. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, myth or matter of fact, only adults can get sleep apnea. It doesn't occur in children. Plus, we're going to talk more about treatment, medical treatment, surgical treatment, behavior modification. All coming up, you're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Eric Olson. We've talked about the symptoms of sleep apnea, how they make the diagnosis, and now we want to concentrate on treatment because it is such a common problem. How many people in the, in the U.S. have sleep apnea? So perhaps up to about 25% of men may have this condition and perhaps in the mid-teens for women. Well, and so what about children? Myth or matter of fact, only adults can get sleep apnea. Total myth. Really? Yep, total myth. So this can be as common in children, but the risk factors are different. So we talked about obesity being important for the adult. In children, it's almost always related to their tonsillar size. Adenoids? Correct. And so for kids, I've usually heard that the kids have surgery, get the adenoids out, and then they're fine. Correct. Unless, you know, we've seen obesity in the childhood population increase, so sometimes it isn't quite that simple. But in general, surgical approach to childhood apnea is the way to go. What about removal of tonsils or adenoids for adults? It can be a treatment option. The the challenge is that most adults don't have significant tonsillar size that would be a good surgical target by the time we see them. So the use of tonsillectomy for adult sleep apnea treatment is uncommon. So let's talk about medical management. We've all heard of the CPAP machine. What is it? Is that the, the first line of defense still? So CPAP stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, and it's an apparatus that allows a gentle pressure of air to be directed to the throat and hold it open pneumatically. So just like when you inflate a low car tire, for instance, hold those structures open so you don't have blockage and stop breathing on that basis. It is our go-to treatment. That along with weight loss would be the most common treatment recommendations. It's a very challenging therapy for a lot of people to use. So often it's quite polarizing. You have people that really love it and couldn't imagine sleeping without it, and then those that have really struggled and are looking for alternatives. Why Why do some people struggle with it? Well, there are a number it's of reasons. It's noisy, right? It, <laughs> it can be noisy, although usually we say the sound of snoring is much noisier than the sound of the machine. <laughs> so noise is not usually a main deal breaker, but uh, there's a lot of comfort issues. So these the air is delivered via different styles of masks or interfaces, we call them, that either go over or into the nose, sometimes cover the nose and the mouth. So you can imagine that could be an intimidating or challenging thing to try to sleep with extra equipment on at night and get comfortable. So finding that that right interface that fits and seals well, it can be a challenge. Well, then you have to think about being the rest of your life that you're using it. Or maybe, you know, you can lose some weight and then you don't need it anymore. The people that I've known who have done it, they 
start out gung ho on it for months, maybe a year or two, and then they just get sick of it. And they don't want to do it anymore. Yep, there is a certain attrition that occurs because people do uh, just lose that discipline or that uh, perceived benefit of put, going through that effort every night to put the equipment on. Like I said, there are many faithful users, but that's not true of everyone. And that's a particularly tough thing to offer a patient in, say, their 30s or 40s, that, hey, this is a therapy that will work, but you have to use it nightly for perhaps the next 50, 60 years. We have a Periscope viewer who wants to know about uh, any other options. What is, what's on the horizon? So the latest treatment option that's gotten a lot of buzz, and pardon the pun, is a pacemaker or an electrical approach to treating sleep apnea. So there is a strategy by which a small electrical stimulus is provided to the nerve that allows you to stick your tongue forward while you're sleeping. So remember, the problem with sleep apnea is that the structures in the back of the throat are crowding and blocking the flow of air. One of those structures that impairs the flow of air is your tongue, and we all can stick our tongue forward. And so by moving it forward away from the back of the throat, that will open up the breathing passage and eliminate that blockage or apnea. So by embedding a pacemaker in the upper chest that has one wire in the chest that senses when you breathe, and then a second wire that goes up to the nerve that controls the tongue. The two can be coordinated. So every time you take a breath, that nerve can be gently stimulated. The tongue moves slightly forward, and it helps keep the throat open. Is it proving successful? It is. The, the experience is very limited so far, but there have been, there's been a nicely done clinical trial that showed benefit at the one-year mark, and now they have data at 18 months and at three years showing that it holds its effect. So it's not widely used, but it does appear to be another tool in our toolbox to treat this condition. What is it called again? It's called hypoglossal nerve stimulation or tongue stimulation treatment for sleep apnea. Anything else that's on the horizon or that's being tried? Well, probably the most common second-line therapy to CPAP would be a mouthpiece, an oral appliance that we call the Jay Leno treatment, if you imagine the comedian (laughs) who has that prominent jaw. By moving that jaw forward during sleep, you bring the tongue and other structures forward with it, and that helps keep that back of the throat widely open during sleep. So there's a lot of um, interest in using these mouthpieces to treat sleep apnea. And there are a variety of surgical approaches that either involve operations in the back of the throat itself on the palate or tongue or on operations that involve the structures of the face. So by repositioning the bony contours of your face, that can actually have a positive impact on the way your throat behaves at night. Does that change what you look like? It does, but interestingly, the studies that have queried people before and after those facial surgeries overwhelmingly show that people like their appearance (laughs) after surgery more than they did before. This is my post-apnea look. Yes. Got it. So uh, it's a very real concern, um, that idea of having facial structures change, but generally the appearance is not a deal breaker. What's the failure rate on the CPAP machine? You know, it's hard to define, Tom, because it depends on how you, what you consider a failure. There are many people out there that use it intermittently, and you may say, well, that's a success. That may not be a success. We'd like it to be used every night. But I would think that probably in the 30% range of patients that initially accept CPAP and aim to use it on a nightly basis, 
just don't stick with it in that uh, intended manner. And those numbers could vary, you know, depending on certain clinical populations. So it's a sizable minority of people that just struggle and can't use that therapy consistently. The ones who do, though, uh, and use it consistently, I mean, that they love it, don't they? Because Absolutely. they can abs- get a good night's sleep, which they haven't had for however long. We try to have those people just sit in our lobby and talk to the people who aren't having as much success. <laughs> but uh, no, there are clearly CPAP devotees, you know, that wouldn't imagine ever sleeping again without it. But there is that, uh, you know, difficult percentage of patients that do struggle with it. We have another question from a Periscope viewer who wants to know any cardiac issues or impairments that can result from apnea. Or neurologic. You'd think yeah. if, you do, if your brain or your heart doesn't have any air for <laughs> 60 seconds, there yeah. might be something. That might be trouble. Great question. And, and that really is the crux of the matter because at the end of the day, many patients with sleep apnea don't recognize this is going on. They don't see this as a problem. We talked earlier that certainly the bed partner can be influenced by that and will often be concerned. But for the patient, really the issues are neurological logically how they behave during the day. If you're not sleeping well, you're going to get drowsy, and we worry about accidents or poor performance as a result of that. So car accidents, occupational accidents, just not cognitively doing well. But specifically, there are very real cardiovascular complications that have to do with high blood pressure, stroke, heart failure, and abnormal rhythms in the heart, some of which can be fatal. So there are very real issues when it comes to one's cardiovascular health. And then other metabolic consequences. So, for instance, diabetes may be linked to having these irregular breathing um, behaviors at night. So there are many, many reasons to be concerned beyond that impact on the bed partner. Yeah, being sleep-deprived, both you and your bed partner, is one thing, but this is much more affecting. And, and Tom, you would appreciate the fact that another short-term issue can be one's safety after surgery. So if one goes into a surgery and has an inability to control their throat and maintain breathing, then we give them medications for pain or for their anesthesia, lie them on their back, which can be a common post-operative position but difficult for the upper airway. Then we know that there are increased post-operative complications. So This condition touches so many things, and as we've realized it, that's why it's been more and more in the news. All right, so we've talked about medical management, the CPAP machine, the uh, tongue stimulator. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've talked about surgical options, but we don't want to forget behavior modification, and I assume that that would be losing weight and cutting back on alcohol. Yep, those are two important things, keeping the nose decongested, and the other is staying off your back. So the back is always the most vulnerable position, so we talk about this concept of a t-shirt with tennis balls in the back, or there are a whole host of pillows that can properly position you. So those would be the main behavioral or risk factor modifications we counsel people on. All right, sleep medicine specialist, Dr. Eric Olson, always great to have you on the program. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, back pain is one of the most common reasons we seek a doctor's care. We'll talk with a back pain specialist about managing this common medical problem. And functional electrical stimulation, or FES. It's being used to treat back and leg pain when other treatments fail. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send an email to mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
A toast to the holidays, a tradition for many, but alcohol can cause irregular heart rhythms or heartbeats, especially this time of year. Holiday heart was originally termed for people that would go to parties around holiday time and drink a little too much alcohol. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky says doctors have known about the effects of alcohol on the heart for decades. Now they know there's another holiday heart-related danger, high-fat foods. It's been shown within 90 minutes, a big fatty meal, saturated animal fats will start to affect the lining of the artery. That lining can become irritated, making it more likely to rupture or tear. Then a clot could develop, block blood flow, and cause a heart attack. But who can resist those rich holiday favorites? So what do you do? Take less of it. Dr. Kopetsky says by including some healthy choices on your plate, reducing the amount of fat you eat and alcohol you drink, you can still enjoy some of those holiday treats. And in other news, the test is positive. You're going to have a baby, but then it happens, a miscarriage. Mayo Clinic obstetrician Dr. Yvonne Butler-Toba says miscarriages are common. About 30% of women have them. The question is why? Well, when you get pregnant, the egg and sperm combine and begin to divide. She says in about 50% of miscarriages, they think if there's a problem with how that division occurs, the body tries to remedy that event by stopping the pregnancy. Other causes include issues with blood supply, implantation into the uterus, an incompetent cervix, underlying health problems such as high blood pressure or smoking and drug use. The common theme many women go through is, what did I do wrong? But Dr. Butler-Toba says likely nothing. She says it's okay to grieve, but keep in mind that most women who have miscarriages will go on to have successful pregnancies. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. There are lots of common medical problems in this world, but being an orthopedist, one of the most common ones that we see and is often a difficult problem because it's difficult to treat and difficult to know exactly what to do and how to help the patient, and that is back pain, low back pain. You've never, you know, I suppose that if you're a neurologist, you see a lot of headaches, but if you're an orthopedic surgeon, you see a lot of low back pain. <laughs> well, here to tell us uh, what to do about back pain and maybe more importantly what not to do is Dr. Jason Eldridge. Dr. Eldridge is an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome back to the program Dr. Eldridge. Thanks for having me. Always good to have you. So back pain we see it every day and it's such a common problem. I guess the first question is why is it such a common problem? Why do human beings have so much trouble with their back? Well, I think part of it is you use your back for almost every activity. It's very hard to disengage the back musculature from anything you do including sitting. The sitting part is not what our cavemen <laughs> forefathers had to do. Is being active better for your back, or is sitting sitting is sitting worse for your back than being active? I guess is yeah. What I think say. sitting is certainly part of our problem. Uh, I don't think we're evolutionarily designed to sit for long periods of time as most of us do. Uh, being active and more importantly, uh, assuming proper proper posture is the most important thing to protect your back. Well, there's more stress on the back, isn't there, in a sitting position than there is standing? Uh, there is. You tense all the back muscles. You're in a spinally flexed position. And in general, that posture tends to work against the natural lordotic curve of your low spine. All right. So the patient has seen an orthopedist. He throws up his hands and he says, I don't really know what to do for you. I, I, I've I, got surgery. pain. Yeah, that's right. I've got back pain. <laughs> surgery is not the answer. So they send the patient to see you. 
uh, a chronic pain specialist. And, and, and what do you do? What are your usual recommendations for those patients? Well, I think the first thing for patients to understand is that the vast majority of low back pain really is, is not serious. It's something that, um, while very painful and, and potentially debilitating, should pass with time and not pose any significant health risk long term. How long is that time? Usually within three months. The studies would uh, indicate that conservative therapy for about 90 days uh, that that time frame, the vast majority of pain will resolve on its own. Now, you said conservative therapy. <laughs> Tell us exactly what you mean by that. Well, by conservative therapy, the typical home remedies that your mom may have told you about uh, are what I'm talking about, things like icing, heating, stretching, making sure that you're active as best you're able without exacerbating the pain. Now, so you confused me a little bit there. You said icing and heating. Now, which, which, when, and does it depend on whatever works best for the patient? Yeah, that's a good question. They seem to be polar opposites, but in fact, I would pick the one that you feel best with. Uh, there's some literature that would indicate icing tends to be better for an anti-inflammatory action, but some people literally find the heating to be more soothing, and that may actually help relax tense muscles better than ice. So alternating them is a good idea? Alternating was, would be what I would recommend. Hmm. What about uh, medication? You probably try to want, to want to try to avoid any narcotic kind of addicting medication if you can. So what, what medication do you find is most helpful for, for people with low back pain? Well, I think the topical over-the-counter uh, analgesics are the best. Topical? To topical, uh, yes. So there's, so you mean something you rub so on. there's non-steroidal topical formulations. And for muscle-based pain that's superficial to the skin, that's a nice option because there's very little systemic uptake. So your impact on the kidneys and the GI tract is much, much less than any oral ibuprofen or other oral NSAID. So you said systemic uptake, you meaning it doesn't get into your bloodstream, exactly right. the rest of your body. Right, exactly right. Uh, the other things to consider would be Tylenol or judicious oral NSAIDs. I'm just thinking back to when I had back issues, and mine was from lifting incorrectly. Right. And I had to lay there looking at the ceiling for three or four days. And the first thing on your list of things to do is remain active. Yeah, the conventional wisdom in teaching used to be bed rest. Uh, but the literature would seem to indicate that the longer you lay there, the more atrophy and weakness develops. And, of course, that can compound the problem, particularly if it's a myofascial problem to begin with. Atrophy, muscle wasting. That's right. Myofascial problem, uh, problem again, define that for us. Uh, so myofascial problems being those related to the muscles or the fascia around the muscles in the low back. But so that, it, that's the kind of the connective, the connective tissue, tissue that holds that's everything right. together. That's right. But if it hurts to move, why should you remain active? So you have to use your own judgment, of course. And there are certain kinds of pain that are more worrisome than others. If you have any onset of weakness, any change in bladder or bowel function, those are symptoms that really should warrant more urgent medical attention. What about the patient uh, who comes in to see you and they may or may not have had any imaging? When do you get an x-ray? When do you get an MRI? That's a good question. Uh, in lieu of red flag symptoms, really conservative care for the first two to three months would be most indicated. Imaging is more useful if you have onset of red flag symptoms or if your symptoms remain recalcitrant to conservative care. Red flag symptom? Uh, weakness, change in bladder bowel function, numbness of the groin area, any of those things. So if that comes up in addition to or after your back pain starts, so they don't always have to start at the same time? That's right. If you have onset of any of those symptoms, that's, that's the time to seek urgent medical attention with either a specialist or at least your primary care doc. That's not a symptom, any of those symptoms to sit on and wait. You should go to the ED if necessary. 
You know, back pain has been a problem for a long time, but I wonder, and I hate to bring this up, but do you think that obesity has something to do with this? Because I always think about if you're walking, if you would walk around with 15 pounds of rocks tied around uh, your your back and your belly, wouldn't your back hurt? Well, that's an excellent point Uh, in general because of the lordotic or curvature of the low spine in the lumbar area. Any weight that you have in the truncal region has disproportionate effects on the low back. It's almost a five-to-one ratio in terms of weight in the front of your stomach causing disproportionate stress on your low spine. So this is a more common problem uh, for someone who is a little overweight. Yes, it it very much (laughs) is. And like most of us who aren't uh, uh, being attentive to specific core musculature strengthening maneuvers, Uh, Once that atrophies or becomes deconditioned, that's also a setup for low back problems. So that's something that people should do, too, try to keep the core muscles in shape. Absolutely. And, in fact, that would be in my cadre of of most important therapies after a back injury, physical therapy and rehabilitation. So I'm sorry. So when you say physical therapy, important to uh, improve the the musculature of both the abdomen and the back? Yes, absolutely. Uh, The core muscle uh, groups, which would include most of the truncal muscle groups, uh, the external internal oblique, transversus abdominis, and the, spiner, uh, the spinal erector muscles. Sort of like I said, the muscles around the back and the abdomen. Exactly <laughs> as you said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, now the things that you don't want to do, because you mentioned this before we got starting, the one thing you said to not do is to push yourself. So That's explain right. that a little bit more. Well, you have to use good judgment. Uh, pain should be your guide. People should maintain activity. Uh, but they shouldn't push themselves to the point of excruciating pain. All right. And another one was rush to image. What does that mean? Uh, in general, there's an over-reliance on imaging uh, in the medical community. And also, uh, you know, patients tend to want to push for this because there's a concept that what we see on imaging will show us the answer. The problem is most of our imaging techniques are overly sensitive, so there may be many spurious findings on imaging that aren't really clinically significant. So and don't jump to an MRI. That's right. And also don't jump to surgery. Explain that one. Well, so surgery has a role that's very important in the right patient population, but like uh, other interventional therapies, uh, conservative therapies should be tried first because the studies would show that the vast majority of cases resolve on their own with tincture of time. You know, we always say that a chance to cut is a chance to cure, but not when it comes to you. <laughs> Spoken like a true surgeon that's older and wiser. Right, Tom? <laughs> Dr. Jason Eldridge, anesthesiologist, pain medicine specialist. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Dr. Jason Eldridge is an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, low-level electrical stimulation can help manage back and leg pain that hasn't responded to other treatments. We'll hear about functional Electrical Stimulation, or FES. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Pain management can be a difficult business. Whether that pain is from your back, your leg, your arms, no pain is good pain, that's Absolutely. for sure. Absolutely, but what options are there after you've tried surgery and medication and therapies or alternative medicine? Well, what we should probably do is find a pain management specialist and see what the <laughs> options are because, uh, what is it, some 30 or 40% of uh, Americans at one time or another have chronic or long-term pain? That's right. We need right. to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. Here to 
explain an option for some patients is Dr. David Monk. Dr. Monk is an anesthesiologist and pain management specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Dr. Monk, good to have you. So, uh, by trade, you are an anesthesiologist. You put people to sleep and or you put their arms and legs to sleep, but you're also a pain management specialist. Or are you just a pain management specialist, not doing, not in the operating room anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I am no longer um, practicing anesthesiology in the operating rooms in the traditional sense. Um, I uh, only do pain management. Uh, it's full-time. Um, in fact, uh, we have a clinic of 14 consultants, and that's all they do as well. How does someone like you make the decision to leave the operating room and, and do what you do? Uh, it's Some of it's just missing that uh, clinical contact with patients, um, that uh, continuity of care. You like it when they're awake. Um, most of my patients, yes. <laughs> so is there a special training in pain management in addition to your anesthesiology training? Yeah. So uh, pain medicine doctors can come into pain medicine through um, anesthesiology or neurology or PM&R um, primary specialties. And uh, that extra training is one more year of uh, it's a board certified uh, accredited program that uh, we all went through. And there are, did you say, 14 of you? Approximately 14 of us. Yeah. Is, is it ever frustrating what you do? Oh, it's extremely frustrating because um, many times I have to tell patients I have nothing for them. Really? But you do have a lot more modalities than you used to have. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And tell us about one of your, your favorites. Well, one of the things that um, uh, we've been doing uh, much more of recently and I think has a, a larger larger. Um, uh, population that we could uh, use this and, and really help people with is spinal cord stimulation. Really? And so is this for back pain? It can be used for back pain. Um, uh, spinal cord stimulation is um, is basically the placement of a small electrode just above the spinal cord. Under uh, the skin? Uh, it's under the skin and it's percutaneously placed. In other words, we used, often just use a needle uh, under x-ray guidance to um, um, place uh, this electrode just above the spinal cord but beneath the skin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, it's kind of like a spinal tap, only you don't go in quite that far? That's exactly right. It's, it's, okay. it's closer to like an epidural uh, placement like when uh, uh, when you have surgery or, or women have uh, uh, pregnancies, they often get an epidural. Mm-hmm. You yes. have that? Oh, yeah, I do. Are did. you all natural? I know, no, I love that it. epidural. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the technique used. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, you put this uh, in uh, adjacent to the to the spinal cord, and what does it do? So basically, you, you put it on the part of the spinal cord that is associated with the area you're interested to stimulate. So parts of the spinal cord are associated with the legs, and other parts with the chest and the heart, and other parts with the arms, for instance. So you choose the right level you want. You turn this device on, and you can adjust the uh, the intensity of the electrical current, the pulse width, and the um, the frequency, such that a patient feels a pleasing buzzing sensation. In, um, in, the fair, in the area you're hoping to stimulate, and that replaces the pain. Um, Instead of the pain, there's the just pain. that buzz, electrical yeah. buzz? It's a, it's a buzzing sensation. Now, there's actually a new technology that just came out last month that um, the patients actually don't feel that buzzing sensation, and it's completely, um, uh, they're insensate to that, um, that buzzing sensation, and that's due to the high frequency of this new technology that just was FDA approved. Is this new? How long has this been around? Spinal cord stimulation actually started in 1967 with a Dr. Sheely in La Crosse, Wisconsin, who did the first um, trial. Um, But it's really become um, mainstream over the past 20 years. So you've got this needle in your back, 
And how long does this stay there? Well, the needle's in your back as long as it takes me to place this small little uh, flexible lead back there. And when that's placed, I take the needle out at the end of the procedure. Um, and uh, for the trial period, I didn't mention this, but what's nice about this device is patients get a chance to trial this before um, they get to decide if they want it or not. So in the trial period, which is three to five days, <clears throat> they, uh, they have this wire coming out of their back, no needle. And we turn the device on, and they get to go home and, and see if it improves their function and their pain during this three- to five-day period. If they like it, we come back at a different point and place this permanently. And if they don't like it, then uh, we just take it out in the office. What do you mean place it permanently? So it stays? They have a wire coming out of their back permanently? So think of it like a, a, as a pacemaker for the spine. Um, there's a small battery that is placed usually in the back. And it's connected to the, the lead or the wire that I was talking about. It's all underneath the skin when it's permanently placed. Oh, underneath the skin. So there's nothing sticking out? Not when it's permanently placed, no. Who, uh, who's a good candidate and who's not such a good candidate for this? Uh, great question. So um, patients who really do well with this are patients who have uh, peripheral uh, pain. In other words, pain in the arms and the legs particularly. Those patients who have pain more in the trunk or the head, um, we can get good results with that, but it's, it's less consistent. Um, common conditions would be um, what we call failed back surgery syndrome or um, patients who have continued or prominent pain after they've had a spine surgery. Patients who have complex regional pain syndrome, uh, patients who have peripheral neuropathy, um, uh, patients who have arachnoiditis, and even patients so who have... So arachnoiditis, sorry. Yeah. Arachnoiditis is inflammation of one of the linings of the spinal cord. Right? Correct. So one of the nerves in the spine can be inflamed for many different reasons. Um, and, and often these patients have um, arm or leg pain, depending on which nerve is involved. All right. And the other uh, term that you used is peripheral neuropathy. Right. So uh, peripheral nerves, um, nerves um, uh, come from our, our spine, and they go out like uh, tree branches um, into the periphery or the, the limbs, and those can um, become injured or unhappy and be sources of pain as well. You said you would go to this after surgery hasn't worked or medication hasn't worked or therapy hasn't worked. Why wouldn't this be the first thing that you try? Well, I mean, there's certain risks and inherent um, complications with any procedure, and you have a foreign device in your body permanently. Um, but pain medication is some pretty in back surgery. Well, these are pretty dangerous things. You know, as as we've as we've if we've over the past few years started to use opioids for chronic pain conditions, we found that those also have con right. concerns that you just alluded to. Opioids and meaning opioids narcotics. like pain medications, like um, morphines and those sort of narcotics, right? Um, and those often, I mean, we, we're dealing with that um, problem right now, and this is a this is an alternative for that. And is it does there come a time when it doesn't work anymore that your body gets used to it or your pain level gets so high that the spine stimulator doesn't work? So what I tell my patients is, um, you know, there's usually that first six month period once we've placed this permanently that they get uh, it's the honeymoon period, <clears throat> what I call it, and then after that um, um, they may not have as much pain relief. Um, I see a decrement of about 10 to 20 percent. Um, so that's why I really want to see these patients have 50 to 80 percent improvement before we during the trial period because I expect it's going to fade a little bit after that six-month period, but it doesn't continue to fade. Can you turn it up? You can turn it up. You can turn it off. You can turn it down. There's different programs associated with it, too. Wow. wow. Very and interesting you said technique. The, di the direction it's going is that the patient, uh, the new ones, they can't really feel that buzzing. Is that, is that uh, technology going to continue to improve? 
there's been a tremendous amount of um, um, technology and uh, development over the past uh, 15 years that I've been doing this. Um, this is probably one of the more exciting things coming out. Um, and there's other things um, that are similar to spinal cord stimulation um, that involve the spine and other areas as well. So there's lots of lots of new technology. All right, Dr. David Mock, anesthesiologist, pain management specialist, talking to us about the spine stimulator for pain management. Glad to hear about it and all the best. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.